This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The case of a Colorado baker who refused to make a cake for a gay wedding will soon go before the U.S. Supreme Court. The court's new term begins next month. The Trump administration has come out on the side of the baker, Jack Phillips, of the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood. We're going to get a preview of the case now from Amy Howe, co-founder of SCOTUS Blog. She's on the phone. Welcome to the program. It's great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. I want to talk a little later about what it means that the administration filed a brief on behalf of the baker. But first, how important a case do you think this is? It's pretty darned important. You know, a couple of years ago, the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was something that states had to allow. And so this is kind of the next battle in the fight over gay rights. You know, as sort of millennials and, and younger people age, and there's more and more acceptance of same-sex marriage, but not everyone accepts it. And then the question is for couples who are getting married, are they going to be treated just like any other couple when they get married? And this has been set up as a case of religious freedom versus uh, sort of equality in services, I guess. That's exactly right. The baker, Jack Phillips, argues that having to create cakes for same-sex weddings, he's a Christian, uh, a deeply religious man who operates a bakery and says that he operates his bakery according with his Christian beliefs. And so he's closed on Sundays. He won't make cakes that contain alcohol. He won't celebrate Halloween or divorce. And he believes that marriage should be limited to opposite-sex couples. And so when Charlie Craig and David Mullins, the couple in this cake, uh, in this case, came to his bakery, he said, I won't make a custom cake for your same-sex wedding celebration because I don't believe in same-sex marriage. This was about five years ago, and no one's really disputing the facts of the case. Both sides have been confident in their arguments. And indeed, Phillips says baking cakes for same-sex weddings is a violation of his First Amendment rights. Uh, here he is uh, in his own words. I'm just trying to preserve my right as an artist, to decide which artistic endeavors I'm going to do and which ones I'm not. And this couple, David Mullins and Charlie Craig, have argued that this is unlawful discrimination. Could this case open up the possibility that other types of businesses, ones that aren't necessarily artistic in nature, could say no to a gay couple or to someone else if they believe serving those customers violates their religious beliefs. And that that's kind of the question. And so in this case, Jack Phillips is arguing that he's an artist, and so he can't be compelled, you know, that his cakes are just like someone who's doing drawing a painting or making a movie, that he can't be compelled to create a cake bearing a message that he disagrees with. Um, And then the question is how broadly that applies. Of course, the Supreme Court is ruling in this case, but then its ruling will have implications for later cases. And that's in part where the Trump administration gets involved. They filed what's known as a friend of the court brief, and they they urged the court to rule for Phillips, but on a relatively narrow ground. Mm. They say this case is just about the First Amendment and, and really just about art. And if you read some of the briefs, the government's brief and Phillips's brief, there's a, you know, a fascinating discussion of the history of wedding cakes and how central they are to a marriage celebration. 
And they say, but most laws, what they call public accommodation laws, these laws that prohibit restaurants and bakeries and other places that serve the public from discriminating based on sexual orientation and race and gender, um, most most of the time those laws, the Trump administration says, should apply to everyone. There's going to be a narrow carve-out for, for actual artistic expression like Phillips's, but even in the wedding context, they say, if you are a hotel that rents out a room for same-sex marriages, celebrations, if you are a limo company or a vendor, those aren't really art. That's not speech. Oh. And so you're going to have to comply with the laws just like everybody else. And if I am a fry cook at a diner and I think the fries that I make are are part of my artistic expression, could I potentially say you can't come into this restaurant? You know, I think you could say that. I think it would be a much harder sell mm-hmm. to, this, to the, the courts. A little bit of the background here. The Colorado Civil Rights Commission found that, uh, indeed, this was a violation of anti-discrimination laws in Colorado, and the Court of Appeals here ordered that Phillips either make wedding cakes for same-sex couples or stop making wedding cakes uh, altogether, and he chose the latter. Phillips says he's lost about 40% of his business and most of his staff since that ruling. Uh, so the ACLU called this this uh, friend of the court brief from the administration shocking. How common is it, though, for uh, the White House to weigh in like this? It's quite common, you know, it, particularly in high-profile cases like this. In particular, as the United States said in its brief, when the federal government has its own kinds of public accommodations laws. And so one of the things that the United States does when it files its briefs is to try to give the Supreme Court um, a broader perspective on how its ruling might play out. The Solicitor General's office, that's the government's chief lawyer before the Supreme Court, um, is often referred to as the 10th Justice because the Supreme Court looks to the, the federal government, sort of give it a, a straight answer, not, not necessarily an unbiased answer, but a, a straight answer about what its rulings might mean. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're getting a preview of a case from Colorado that's headed to the Supreme Court. The High Court will hear it in its new term. And I'm speaking uh, with SCOTUS blog co-founder Amy Howe. That's a blog that closely watches the Supreme Court. This is the Masterpiece Cake Shop case out of Lakewood. And uh, Amy, three years ago, the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to review a similar case that came out of New Mexico, actually, where the state's High Court ruled that a photography studio violated state law when it said no to photographing a same-sex commitment ceremony, citing, uh, again, religious beliefs. So the the court there said, no, we're not going to hear it. And now the court says we're going to hear this one. Is that just because the composition of the court has changed or what? I don't think it's, you know, you never know exactly what's going on in the Supreme Court. But certainly I think this was a case in which the composition of the court had changed in the sense that Justice Antonin Scalia had passed away and he was replaced by Justice Neil Gorsuch. But I think most people who follow the court would expect to get roughly the same result from Justice Gorsuch. In fact, you know, I think most people would agree that that's why Donald Trump put him on the court. And so many people, including myself, actually thought that the Supreme Court might turn this case down. Um, but a little bit has changed in the past three years um, that Alon Photography and Masterpiece actually have the same attorneys, 
But one of the things that the Supreme Court looks to when it's deciding whether or not it's going to take on a case is whether or not the lower courts are divided on a legal question. So that a court in Colorado has reached a different result than a court in another state. And that's because the Supreme Court only hears somewhere between 70 and 75 cases each year. So they can't just take a case because they think they got the wrong result in the lower court. They want to try to make sure that the same legal principle applies everywhere equally. And in its briefs asking the Supreme Court to take the case three years ago, the photography studio acknowledged that these cases don't happen very often. They conceded that there was no division among the lower courts, even though they assured the court that this issue was vitally important. Uh, By the time Masterpiece came to the Supreme Court, it wasn't even necessarily that different courts of appeals and different state Supreme Courts had reached different decisions on the exact question in this case, but Masterpiece did say, look, there are divisions among the lower courts on some of the some subsidiary questions, like whether or not Phillips's creative process is conduct or speech, and how do you figure that out? And these cases have also just become more common as same-sex marriage has been legalized. And so right now the Supreme Court has before it a similar case involving a florist out of Washington State. I I read about another case involving involving a bakery in California. And so the justices may have just said, okay, we need to resolve this question so that everyone's operating under the same rules nationwide. Now, earlier this year, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled in favor of a Missouri church. Uh, The state had said the church couldn't compete for a state-funded grant to fix its playground. Uh, How much of an indicator could that ruling be in how the justices decide on Masterpiece? That was a ruling that was not actually that closely divided. The Supreme Court it was a vote of 7 to 2 and the supreme court took great pains to say we're just talking here about playground funding we're not talking of which everyone can agree is a secular use of the money we're not talking about money for religious purposes but at the same time it does indicate that uh you know that there are going to be several justices who are protective of religious liberties. We've also seen this recently in the case called Burwell versus Hobby Lobby, which was whether or not a family that runs a company, in this case the Hobby Lobby stores, that objects to providing birth control to its female employees can opt out of the program on religious grounds. And by a vote of five to four, the Supreme Court said, yes, yes, it can. Very briefly, Amy, who do you think has precedent on their side? Well, they both, this is one of these things, when you get to the Supreme Court, you you know, everybody can find a case that seems analogous, and then it's a question of which case the justices find is most analogous. And so Masterpiece points to a case called Hurley. It involved the Boston St. Patrick's Day Parade, and the St. Patrick's Day Parade allowed almost every group that applied to march it allowed LGBT individuals to participate, but it wouldn't allow a separate and distinct LGBT group to march. And the Supreme Court said the parade can do that. Um, we can't force individuals to alter what they communicate, much less to, sub- to celebrate something that they deem objectionable. Um, the 
couple and the state have a case called Rumsfeld versus Fair, which was a challenge to the Solomon Amendment. This was back in the era of don't ask, don't tell in the military. And that that required law schools to provide the same access to military and non-military recruiters. And some law schools had objected to the military recruiters, argued that the amendment violated their First Amendment rights because they had to allow them And they said that was effectively endorsing the message that gays and lesbians should not be allowed to serve. And the Supreme Court said, no, you're not endorsing that message. You're just treating both sides the same. Uh, So the answer is, we will see. We will see. (laughs) As is so often the case covering the Supreme Court. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. Amy Howe co-founded SCOTUS blog. Oral arguments for the Masterpiece Cake Shop case are likely to be scheduled for December. Finland is consistently ranked as having one of the world's best school systems, but it's not because of testing. They don't do much of that. Colorado's Teacher of the Year traveled to Finland this summer to talk to teachers and learn about their approach. He's here to share what he thinks our state can learn and perhaps what absolutely would not work here. Sean Wybrant teaches career and technical education at William J. Palmer High School in Colorado Springs. And Sean, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I understand one of the things that struck you in Finland was the notion of trust. What do you mean by that? Well, one of the things that you see in Finland is you see that the the people from the very top, the minister of education, all the way down to the principals and superintendents, the people that are in charge of the school systems, every one of them just has ultimate trust that teachers are going to do what teachers are are there to do, which is educate kids, and that they're going to do whatever is best for the kids, and that the kids are going to show up and the kids are going to want to learn. Do you feel that that's different from what you see as a teacher in the United States? I think that sometimes what we see here in the States is that you have trust that's built in in some ways in some systems. But overall, when we talk about accountability, we don't talk about accountability from the perspective of empowering teachers to do what teachers think is best in the classroom all the time, we oftentimes are looking at results and very specific kinds of results to see whether or not kids are making the progress that they're supposed to. But isn't it natural to look at results and say that's that the outcomes are what are important? I I think it absolutely is. And there's a place for testing. I think that what you see in America a little bit more, though, is you see an overemphasis of particular kinds of tests. So when you see an overemphasis of standardized tests instead of practical application of the content that kids are learning in the classroom, I think that we've gone a little bit too far in that direction. And it would be good to have a little bit more balance with the kinds of assessments that we could have. Now that... Yeah, practical. Let me follow up on that practical application point. I remember sitting in math thinking, I wish they would tell me how I was going to learn or use what I'm learning in math, for instance. Did you see examples in Finland of practical application? So we didn't see as many practical pieces of of application, but part of that was because we went in the summertime. And so we didn't have the chance to see kids, you know, playing around in in the classes. Uh, What we did here, though, was that there was just a little bit different emphasis on on kind of valuing all kinds of learning for learning's sake, not necessarily for for results' sake. Can you say what that looks like? So an example of this would be they're, they're rolling out something called phenomenon-based learning. And in phenomenon-based learning, the idea is that you pick a phenomenon. So you might pick weather storms, okay? Right? And then what you do is you ground all of the education around that one topic. So you bring in history and you bring in science and you bring in math and you really talk about how weather actually impacts culture and you talk about how culture impacts the way that we 
address weather issues, which is something that that would be great for us to have conversations about right now as we look at the storms that that we've had. Goodness, yes. And the fact that one subject or one issue can be multidisciplinary. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And, and I think that we have the opportunity to do that. Actually, in Colorado, one of the great things is that our assessment system is actually built in a way that would allow people to look at more than standardized testing. So if you look at the Colorado Department of Education and the way that we can can value what kids are learning about, there are all kinds of options. Oftentimes, though, those take a lot of time when you're looking at a portfolio-based approach or when you're looking at that interdisciplinary approach. And so a lot of people don't necessarily take the time to do that because it's easier to give other kinds of assessments. Finnish children spend less time in the classroom and they have less homework. In high school, it's half what Americans apparently have. Explain what their school day is like and and why perhaps you think it works. So we had the chance to sit down and talk with some principals and some educators, especially at the the younger grades. So think the equivalent of like first grade through eighth grade here. And one of the things that, that kind of struck me is that they, they do spend about half the time that we spend at school. And for every 45 minutes that they're in the classroom, they get a 15-minute recess. They get the opportunity to go and have unstructured playtime or they get the opportunity to go and have structured playtime, which is something very different. When you look at, at a lot of American school systems, what we've done is we've kind of cut back on the amount of time that kids have to just play. And the kinds of exploratory classes, oftentimes because we're trying to make sure that they can read, write, and, and do math really effectively based on results that we see. Now, the Finnish system, though, kind of builds in this time for play and it builds in time for kids to just be kids. And that was kind of refreshing to see to see that when we had the opportunity to talk to some students, they were like, well, yeah, like, why wouldn't you do that? I mean, we learn a lot through play, too. And there's research that actually shows that. So so that was that was pretty interesting. The other half of that, though, is that even though the kids are only going to school for about half the time, the teachers are there for the same amount of time that, that we have teachers in classes here in, in America. What the teachers end up doing is spending all the extra time where they don't have students looking at the kinds of assessment data that they do have based on conversations with kids, based on practical application of, of whatever the content is that they're supposed to be learning about. Does that feel like a luxury to you? Like, I, I wonder if you, you saw that and thought, I would... I would kill for that kind of time to yeah. think deeply about my kids. Yeah, to to have an opportunity not only to think deeply about my kids, but to have an opportunity to sit down with other educators and really bounce ideas off of each other and build those interdisciplinary units and to look at practical application and to build connections to the community. Hmm. That sort of time would be really, really valuable. It never occurred to me that recess benefits the teacher, too. (laughs) It's always that you think of recess in terms of the kids. If you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Sean Wybrand. He's Colorado's Teacher of the Year, and he spent time in Finland over the summer. That country has one of the best school systems in the world. We're talking about what he might bring back to his own classroom. And I do want to talk about things that might not translate to the United States. So Finland is small. The population is about the same as the state of Colorado. And it's homogenous. 93% of its population uh, is ethnic Finns. By comparison, in Colorado schools, 47% of children are ethnic or racial minorities. There are obviously many different languages uh, spoken. Were there programs that might raise red flags in a more diverse population. Yeah. So so 
I teach kids about computer science and video game design and development, and I'm a career and technical education teacher. And one of the real strengths of the Finnish system is that you have this opportunity to kind of specialize by the time you get to the end of middle school. You can go into either the high school track or you can go into more of a career and technical education track, a vocational track. And so that, that split allows for kids who maybe want to be painters or want to be really good construction workers to be valued and to be able to really explore the science of construction or the chemistry of painting or or those things but it's very targeted toward the kind of thing that they would like to learn about and and that works in the Finnish system and i think that part of the reason is because of the cultural um norms that they've got and the way that they have kind of set up the value that everybody matters and when we look at the education system here in the States, if we were to, to say, well, you can be a construction worker, one of the things that we've done in the past is we've said that to kids, but we've said it to a very specific group of kids, right? And oftentimes we've said that to kids that don't speak English and kids that, you know, that we kind of I have identified as being in sort of a, a lower class. And we haven't said, and being a construction worker is just as valuable as being a doctor. And so there's a value system placed on these kinds of jobs here in America. I think that when you look at trying to translate the Finnish system to the American system, you would run into the possibility of all of the history of tracking coming up. And it would be a harder a harder way to kind of get kids to the end point that they might want to might want to shoot toward. I'm going to say that Finland spends more on education per capita as a percentage of GDP than the United States. How how do you think that this experience will change what you do in your own classroom? What changes this year? Mr. Wybrandt. <laughs> so so for me, one of the best parts about the entire experience was I had the chance to to talk with one of the guys who helped Rovio with development of some of the Angry Birds games. And Rovio is the company that made that 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 app game. Yes, yes. And so I had the opportunity to talk with this guy about what are the skill sets that we need to have? What are the skill sets that we need to develop in our students and why is it so important for us to get them thinking about computer science and to think critically and to think about things from a global perspective? And not, you know, just a, just an American kind of perspective. And, and so as we were having the beginning of that conversation, uh, what really kind of, kind of changed for me was looking at the kinds of apps and, and games that my kids are making and trying to make sure that they're looking at things from a global perspective. Uh, not just what might work in their own backyard or in their own country. Right. How could we make software that, that will value somebody else's culture? So an example of this, we're trying to make virtual escape rooms where you could, you know, be in a Greek temple or you could be in a, you know, a Mars station. And have to find your way out. And have to find your way out. How could we do that and make sure that we are not appropriating somebody's culture, that we're appreciating somebody's culture and putting in culturally relevant details that would allow students to get a broader perspective themselves, but also teach that broader perspective to others. And if you do that, you presumably open a market for an app much more widely. Yes. And it would be more successful. Yeah. Yeah. Making apps in high school. My have times changed. Sean, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. Sean Wybrandt of William J. Palmer High School in Colorado Springs is the state's 2017 Teacher of the Year. And we talked about the time he spent this summer studying the school system in Finland. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The 
Colorado Symphony officially welcomes a new conductor this weekend for four years of performances. This is conductor Brett Mitchell leading the symphony in a performance of Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony. This weekend marks Mitchell's first official performance as the new music director. He'll hold that title for the next four seasons. Brett joins us to talk about his vision for the orchestra and talk about some of his favorite music. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Great to be here. Music director means you're the head conductor, but you also help shape the orchestra's identity. You've talked about wanting to grow a new audience for the Colorado Symphony, which it, it seems to me the symphony has been trying to do for some time now. What is What does that new audience look like to you? Well, I think the new audience looks an awful lot like the general population as a whole. You know, I think a lot of times we think of classical music as, uh, you know, an art form for one kind of people or one income level. And I just, I'm a testament to how untrue that is. I grew up uh, in Seattle in the 80s and 90s. So I was listening first and foremost to the pop music of my parents' generation. And then being in Seattle as a kid when the grunge movement was happening, Happening. I there was, was a, some Nirvana. There was there. a lot of Nirvana, a lot of Pearl Jam, a lot of Soundgarden, and eventually I found my way to classical music. So uh, I think that having had the journey that I've had in music, which is not, you know, a lot of my colleagues start playing Mozart sonatas when they're like three years old. I'm just not that guy. I fell in love with classical music, actually in large part through the film music that I was listening to yeah. when I was a kid. So, so this really is music that's for everybody, and that's part of what we're trying to to uh, trying to accomplish here at the Colorado Symphony. In order to attract a broader audience then, one that looks more like the general population, is that just a question of, of crowd-pleasing pop concerts or what? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a, a mixture of, of crowd-pleasing pops concerts, but I think there's also really something to be said for the relatability of the person on the podium. I think sometimes we, we look at conductors or we think about conductors, you know, 15 years ago when I started doing radio for, for my job, I would walk into the studio and people would say, oh, we were, uh, we were expecting the maestro? And I said, I, I am the maestro. I, and I think that there's this this idea that that classical music conductors are this you know have to be seventy year old European guys and that's that's just not what it is. So I think the relatability, the fact that I have similar experiences to all of our friends and neighbors and colleagues, I think that that's part of what will really draw people to to come see us at Betcher. We'll say more about that relatability. What does it look like on the podium or in how you interact with an audience? Well, yeah, and that's ex- you, you've hit the nail right on the head. I mean, it's really about how you interact with the audience. How much of a real person can you be? I mean, I I don't like getting on the podium and talking to the audience somehow differently than if I were talking to you one-on-one. I'm interested in connecting with people on a personal level. And I think that, that being able to have a more casual, more conversational atmosphere uh, in Betcher is, is really what's going to help us accomplish that. You're 38? Is I am right? 38. Okay. Relatively young, I think, for a music director. Yeah. Does that make it a bit harder? Maybe it makes it easier to win over some audiences, but does it make it harder to win over the orchestra? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. I used to get that, uh, that question a lot uh, when I was younger, maybe 15 years ago. As I said, people would say, oh, gosh, is it intimidating getting in front of an orchestra when, like, everybody's older than you are? And not everybody's older than me anymore, which is why the relatively <laughs> young comment is appropriate. Um, but it's, uh, you know... Uh, 
I realized a long time ago that if you make it about you or you make it about the orchestra, then things can get a little bit dicey. But if when you're on the podium, you're really just there to work on the music, you don't get on the podium and say, I think this, I want this, or you need to play shorter, or you should play that softer. If you can just keep it about the music, then it doesn't become about anybody, and and it's actually a lot easier to get the job done. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Brett Mitchell. He's the official new conductor of the Colorado Symphony, the new music director this weekend. Uh, He has been doing uh, some performances leading up to this officialdom. You have really great hair. What? (laughs) Thank you. A great head of hair. Does that become (laughs) like a prop or do you sort of dramatically sweep it when you're in the midst of something dramatic? All I'm trying to do with the hair is keep it out of my face, (laughs) honestly, because when the the hair comes down, you know, at the end of a Tchaikovsky symphony, I know we just played a little bit of the Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony. At the end of a Tchaikovsky symphony, after you've really been going at it for 45 minutes, I mean, it's hard not to get sweaty up there. So all I'm trying to do is keep the hair out of the way. Here's you conduct for the CSO, the famous waltz, The Blue Danube by Johann Strauss II. What do you remember about your first time conducting the Colorado Symphony Orchestra? Well, it was really a whirlwind. It was in July of last year, July of 2016. And uh, the orchestra was at the beginning of the process of looking for a new music director. And I didn't realize how seriously they were considering me until a few days before I came to town. And they said, hey, we'd like you to sit down with some various committees and, and, uh, you know, our CEO and all of that and have some conversations. And so we did that. And then what you're hearing uh, was uh, from the very first performance that we did uh, last, I think it was July 16th. And I flew home to where we were living at the time, Cleveland, Ohio. I was the associate conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra for four years. Uh, I flew home the next day. And when I landed, I got a phone call from the board chair of the Colorado Symphony offering me the job the very next day. So it was really just an enormous whirlwind. I mean, I went from the first rehearsal that we had on Friday to being offered the job on Sunday, which is just unheard of. They really like you. Apparently. Yes. Apparently. (laughs) A lot of the coverage, though, of the symphony... I guess really a few years back, focused on budget difficulties and whether the orchestra would even survive. Uh, Leadership has made changes since then. But did those headlines, I mean, I'm imagining you did what what we call as journalists a clip search, right? Looking up old headlines and articles. Did, Did that give you pause when you thought about coming to Denver? Not at all, because what I found when I was looking at Denver more than anything is how many people are moving to Denver every single month. And now my wife and I are some of those people that have moved to Denver. And when you look at how do we gain new support for the orchestra, listen, it would be a very different thing if the population were stagnant, but we've got new people coming in month after month after month. And even if we only got 1% of those new people. I mean, you're talking about thousands of of people a year. So no, in fact, quite the opposite. I wasn't concerned at all. I was excited by the promise of all the new people coming into town. Right. The fact that Denver is not a rust belt city gave you some some comfort. Uh, You conducted a concert with the soprano Renee Fleming 
the opera superstar. I think yeah. what, just last weekend, right? Yeah, that's right. What was that like? Um, unbelievable, honestly. I, I uh, were you intimidated? I'd be so intimidated. You know, not really. I mean, I I've known Renee for about eight years. This is the first time we've worked together with me on the podium. Uh, but I've known her for for a good long while. But again, kind of like what I was saying with the orchestra, you know, is it is it hard to work with the orchestra when so many of them are older than you? Well, is it hard to work with Renee? Flem- when she's, you know, probably the most famous classical singer in the world. Not really if you can just get yourself down to work. That said, since it was my first kind of official concert as music director of the Colorado Symphony, you know, my wife was here. She's a soprano, so getting to hear Renee Fleming was a great treat for her. My folks flew down from uh, from Seattle. Uh, so it was just, it was a special evening. It was a really meaningful evening, and to, to share that experience with Renee is something I will never forget. Okay, that's Renee Fleming. Here's... Something completely different. I want to get your reaction to this. All right, this is you conducting the theme of Raiders of the Lost Ark, having fun with John Williams. And this really was some of the first classical music you were exposed to, I guess. That's exactly right. I mean, I was born in 1979. So the first orchestral music that I ever heard was not in a concert hall. It was coming out of our TV at home. And so, as you would imagine, being a little boy born in the late 70s, what was I watching? I was watching Star Wars, and I was watching Indiana Jones, and I was watching Superman, and I was watching E.T. And, of course, it wasn't until many years later that I knew oh my God, all of that music was written by the same guy. And so it was really John Williams' film music that was the the bridge for me to get into classical music. So uh, it, it is no small exaggeration to say, you know, it, it's I would not be here without John Williams. He was hmm. he was kind of my first orchestral music love. I think you mentioned your wife, uh, Angela. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so she was a classical radio host when you were uh-huh. in Cleveland. That's right. And I wonder if she ever helps you decide which pieces might work together on a concert program. Yeah, in fact, she is uh, my my number one sounding board. I think it's probably fair to say that there is not a program that I conduct anywhere in the world that she doesn't look at before anybody else. You know, I mean, the process of programming a concert, uh, you have to go through a lot of different steps. But before I send it to whether it's the Colorado Symphony uh-huh. administrative staff or an orchestra that I'm guest conducting – I always run it by Angela first. I mean, she's got two music degrees herself. Uh, and so she's a really, really valuable extra set of eyes uh, for me before I go proposing all the crazy things I go proposing. <laughs> <laughs> Behind every great conductor. Thanks for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Brett Mitchell is the new music director of the Colorado Symphony. And the official start of his tenure is this weekend when the symphony plays music by Ludwig Bet. Be- Easy for me to say. This is a, what, what a mistake to make in front of you. Ludwig von Beethoven. <laughs> that was perfect. Ma- Mason Bates and Kevin Putz. CPR Classical will carry that concert live starting at 7.30 Friday night. This is Colorado Matters.
Hiking a 14er in a corset and long skirt sounds miserable, but landscape painter Helen Henderson Chain did it in the 1870s, all in the name of art. She's one of the women featured in Pioneers, a film about early female Colorado artists. It screens this weekend at the DocuWest Festival in Denver, and Erica O'Connor is the filmmaker. Welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. So Helen Henderson Chain and her husband James moved to Denver in the 1870s. James opened a bookstore Helen painted. And her painting completely changed when she got here. She started doing gutsy landscapes instead of the polite ladylike paintings she'd done in the East. That's an art collector in your film. Uh, What made Chain's paintings gutsy? I love that term. (laughs) Um, Just the very nature of her going out and painting these landscapes was gutsy in itself. Um, At the time, most so-called gentlewomen were trained in art of some sort, you know, whether they play an instrument or paint, Um, but they were expected to only study it so far as it could entertain their husbands and their guests. Um, They were not expected and were very much discouraged from having a career. And so Helen um, was lucky in that her husband supported her having a career. And so she not only painted, but she went beyond painting still lives. She was the first woman to hike and paint the Mount of the Holy Cross, a 14,000 foot mountain. She painted Long's Peak, Gray's Peak. She was the first woman to paint the Grand Canyon on site. Um, she was incredible. And, you know, she was out there in her long skirt and bustle and and her corset and high heels. She was something. High heels? High heels. Oh, my goodness. I can't fathom <laughs> walking in high heels. And there are up photos. Of, of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But speaking of photos, didn't didn't she uh, do a lot of, of sort of excursions into these places mm-hmm. with William Henry Jackson? That's right. Who I think of as sort of the... Ansel Adams of Colorado. Yep, totally. She was, uh, the chains were close friends with the Jacksons. So they would actually take train trips around um, the Southwest and he would photograph the same locations that she would paint. So you see, you know, her painting the Alamo and, you know, the, the Pueblos. Um, yeah, they had a close relationship. And so then William Henry Jackson taught the chains to photograph. So when they went on a trip to Europe, um, James Chain takes these beautiful photos of Helen, you know, hiking um, in Italy. And there's also, you know, a photo Helen takes of James kind of like asleep in bed, you know, from like the 1880s. <laughs> it seems like such a, a modern picture. Yeah. And they also traveled, I think, to China and Japan. Mm-hmm. And I, I kept thinking throughout your film, how, how much might a painting today by Helen Henderson chain fetch? And do you see them in people's homes? Are they, are they in museums? That's a really good question. I don't know how much they would fetch, but um, the paintings that I used in the film came from private collections. Oh. Um, there are a few, though, in, uh, in public collections. Um, for example, the Molly Brown House Museum has a Helen Chain painting. Molly Brown was a contemporary of Helen's. Um, and the CU Boulder Law School also has one of her paintings. Yeah, there's, there's part of me that thinks maybe with your film, these women will become as well-known as, it's like Georgia O'Keeffe. Is it Mm -hmm. it that you hope to raise their profile? I think that these women were really extraordinary, but they also were good examples of what 
a lot of women were doing to promote the arts and to promote women's access to arts um, in the American West um, during the 19th and 20th century. You also focus on the work of activist and feminist Jean Sherwood. Mm -hmm. The Chicagoan lectured at Boulder's Chautauqua early in uh, its tenure, and she was part of the guild that was at the roots of today's Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art. In 1911, when Sherwood was 65, she founded a retreat in Colorado for single working women. When they said Bluebird Cottage, a vacation home for self-supporting women, board $5 a week, I thought, ugh, some peanutty popcorn boardwalk noisy place. When I heard the home was in Colorado, within sight of snowy ranges, I made further inquiries. And then I went to Bluebird Cottage. It was the most refreshing and inspiring vacation I ever had. So that's a clip from the film, a woman describing her response to the advertisement that she sees. What 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 is Jean Sherwood trying to do there? So um, as you mentioned, she came to Colorado in 1898 to lecture at the Chautauqua and absolutely fell in love with Colorado. And um, she had spent most of her life in Chicago um, promoting um, causes of uh, social causes for women, mainly. And so when she got to Colorado, she thought, wow, I would love to share this with the women in Chicago, um, self-supporting working women. And so she started what was essentially a timeshare. These women could pay a fee and have access to this vacation home in Boulder and then later Gold Hill for the rest of their lives. And so they would come out here, you know, first they would come by train and then they would take a carriage, they would take a horse carriage up to Gold Hill. Um, You know, eventually it was done by car, but this was an adventure. And um, I think it really created a community for the women and it was something to look forward to that they wouldn't ever experience in Colorado, in Chicago, excuse me. In Chicago, yeah. Uh, Coming coming west, coming to the mountains and being in a a relatively safe space, perhaps for an unmarried woman. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, at the time it was a at great risk to their reputation to travel alone. So um, the organization would publish a lot of flyers to really say, like, you know, this is a legitimate thing. These women will be together, you know. (laughs) She has a lovely quote, Jane Sherwood, in your film. An artist sits down at a canvas and makes two strokes here and two strokes there. And the result is not four strokes. It is a field with the sun setting on the horizon. It is the spirit of the evening. So talk just a bit more about her connection to art. So um, Jean Sherwood studied art at Oberlin University. At the time, only about 1% of American women went to universities. And um, she moved to Chicago on her own and was teaching art and working as a practicing artist before she married an inventor, um, John Sherwood. With John, she no longer needed to work for money. So she spent her time trying to promote um, arts appreciation uh, among working class people. So she would lecture every week at the Chicago Art Institute. Um, she would she founded all these um, concert and art or art lecture organizations and founded safe spaces where she would promote the arts among working class women. So she really believed that um, sharing art, uh, that should be the center of community. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is the documentary filmmaker Erica O'Connor. Her new film about early female Colorado artists is called Pioneers. It's part of this weekend's DocuWest 
Festival in Denver. And another female artist in the film has a formidable name, Muriel Cybel Wolle. Uh, she chaired the CU Boulder Art Department for decades, helped lay the foundation for the CU Art Museum, and she had a particular passion uh, when it came to a, a, a subject matter of, of paintings. What was that? <laughs> That's right. Um, Muriel Seibel Wally. Um, Wally. Yeah. Um, she was um, enchanted by Colorado ghost towns, mining towns, and she made it her mission in life to go around documenting them in paintings and in, in words um, before they disappeared. At the time, when she when she moved out to Colorado in 1926, she first came, um, the the ghost towns, the mining towns were disappearing. Literally, they were being disassembled. And so she felt an urgency to recording them and to um, instilling pride in Colorado history and heritage. And so when, um, you know, she, she put together a book in 1949 and she was trying to, um, you know, sell the manuscript and no one was interested. They were like, oh, who cares about this? So she self-published a work called Stampede to Timberline in 1949. And it was a big hit. It went on to sell thousands and thousands of copies, um, you know, over a dozen editions. And now it's considered the Bible for um, the ghost town hunters. And she would often travel to these places on very precarious roads uh, to, to document them, to paint ghost towns that were disappearing. That's right. You know, in a way, she's sort of like Helen Chain. You know, she was very much an adventurer. She found ways to get there, you know, whether it was by horse or by foot. Um, and she would often, she could drive, but um, she always had a student or her husband, you know, drive her to these places. I guess she wanted to concentrate on the art instead of the, the road. And um, she she visited over 400 communities just in Colorado, not to mention all the the West. I really enjoyed the paintings of Muriel Cybele Wale uh, uh, in the film, documenting these places. There's there's just something about a ghost town, and she was fascinated with really how they represented uh, people's interactions with the landscape and how fleeting, in a way, that that could be. Would you say? Um, yeah, that's right. Um, she saw them as uh, a testament to our heritage and something that should be valued and preserved. I think uh, what I also took away from from this film just briefly is is how much uh, early female artists in Colorado were connected to social movements. And then that was even true, for instance, uh, one of the artists becomes quite an advocate for the equal treatment of, of Chinese immigrants. That's true. Um, I think... Uh, looking at the state of affairs today, we can learn a lot from um, their example. So um, Helen Henderson Chain, for instance, uh, during a time when there was a lot of discrimination against Chinese workers, um, you know, there, this was the, the Chinese um, Exclusion Exclusion Act, Act yeah. that's right, um, actually banned a group based on race. And Helen you know, her response is to create a school to teach Chinese the English language and help them integrate into society. You know, um, Muriel Saibawali, too, um, she was teaching at a time when um, segregation was a real thing. And she she made an effort to bring um, black artists and students um, to campus to welcome them into her home. 
Um, and so this was really a, a passion for them on both the artistic front and the social one. As we learn, Erica O'Connor's documentary Pioneers about early female Colorado artists will be at the DocuWest Festival this weekend in Denver. It's at the Alamo Draft House. And we've posted photos of these women and their artwork at cprnews.org. These are names to know. Earlier this year, we invited a small group of Coloradans to dinner. Coloradans with different political views who might not normally spend time together. We wanted to see if they could find common ground in a series we call Breaking Bread. Karina Gaylord was at our table. She lives in Arvada, voted for Trump. She's a small business owner who followed in her mother's footsteps. Probably the biggest influence in my life was my mom. She was a single mom. My parents divorced when I was six. And she uh, raised my brother and myself, you know, pretty much for 10 years on her own. Well, Gaylord and the others continue their conversation next week, along with a special guest, a mediator who has worked with Congress. So Breaking Bread Part 2 is just around the corner. We hope you'll join us. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.